Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Through the Bible with Les Feldick, an inspirational and informative half hour of insight into the heart of Scripture. In addition to teaching the Bible, Les is a full-time rancher, having a down-to-earth practical teaching style that makes the Bible come to life. All programs are available on audio tape, videotape, and in printed form. At the end of the program, there will be an address where you can contact the ministry. And now, here's Les Feldick with today's lesson. Genesis chapter 22. You're going to get to this very place that God told Abraham to go. And in Scripture, we call it what? Mount Moriah. But on Mount Moriah tonight stands... Well, I, I always used to call it the Mosque of Omar, and then I read here a while back that that's not a correct term, that it's not a mosque, it is a shrine, but whatever. You know what I'm talking about. On Mount Moriah, and when you get inside that mosque, coming up out of what we would call the basement, is this huge rock, and the mosque has been built around it. Well, that is supposedly the rock where Abraham was to offer Isaac. But the point I'm making is that Mount Moriah is the very same place in Scripture where Solomon's temple rested. So all of these things, like I said a few programs back, everything when you're dealing in Israel is specific in time, in prophecy, everything. And so even here, before the nation of Israel is even on the scene, Mount Moriah becomes a place of tremendous import. And so, verse 3, Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled the ass, and took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son, and clave, or carried the wood for the burnt offering, <clears throat> rose up, and went unto the place of which God had told him. And then verse 4, I'd like to have you underline another little important two words, on the third day. The third day. So that immediately should tell us something. What is this going to be a picture of for well, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? So on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Abide you here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, underline again, and come again unto you. What did Abraham know? that even if Isaac's life had to be taken, God would raise him from the dead and he'd come back with him. That much Abraham knew and believed. And this again is the total picture now of what Christ would accomplish on the cross. Typically, I think we're perfectly correct in saying that Isaac is a type here of Christ. Abraham is a type of God the Father. And you have that same love relationship. You have that same sacrifice situation in both instances. And so Abraham, verse 6, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. 
took the fire in his hand and knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac, now remember, he's a lad of 18 or 20, and he has certainly been witness to more than one sacrifice and order of worship for the ancients. And so Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and he said, Now my father, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the what? Where's the lamb? What are you going to sacrifice? And now the amazing thing is, Abraham doesn't say at this point in time, Well, Isaac, it's going to be you. But what does Abraham say? God will provide. See? God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in altar, and bound Isaac his son. Now, for the ordinary strapping 18 or 20-year-old, what could you have expected about now? I think there's been one good instance where the son could have really whipped his father. But does he? No, complete obedience. Now, again, take this 2,000 years into the future. When it came time for those Romans to begin scourging him and whipping him and pulling out his beard and, and slapping that crown of thorns on his head, what could Christ have done? He could have done the same thing. He could have rebelled and he could have thrown it all aside. The Scripture says he could have called down ten legions of angels. He wouldn't have had to go. But what did he do? In complete obedience, he suffered at the hands of all these infidels and of the raging religionists of his day, and he went to the cross. So Isaac. And he obediently lets Abraham bind him and lay him upon the altar. Verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And here we have that term again, and the angel of the Lord. Who is it? It's God the Son. I don't want to call him Jesus in the Old Testament because the Bible does it, but it's God the Son, it's Jehovah, the same person, but in his Old Testament character. The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here am I. Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now, God says, I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. Now, let's bring it into the life of a believer. Do believers suffer? Oh, some of them have gone through tremendous suffering. But you know, if they're a true believer, and I've had several of them in my classes, I've got one young lady I, I can't help but think of every time I come to something like this, totally paralyzed, and yet has the best attitude, the happiest disposition of anybody I've ever known. And to her, her suffering has just proven to God what? That she loves him. And it's the same way in, in every believer's life. The reason God brings times of testing and tribulation is to test our mettle. Because what will a lot of people do? Oh, they get bitter. They get bitter and they get angry and, and they get rebellious. But you see, the true heart, the true believing heart, when hard times come, God becomes all the more precious. And this is what we all have to learn. We've been through some tying times, 
and God brought us through it. I'm sure most of you have been through trying times, and you know what I'm talking about. God is not going to let us escape problems. He's simply going to be our host as we go through them. And so here, even with Abraham, oh, Abraham says, I know now that you love me because you are ready to sacrifice even your well-loved son. And it's the same way again with God the Father. How do we know that God loves us? Oh, when he sent Christ to the cross. The only thing that put Christ on the cross was the love of God and the sin of mankind. All right, Abraham, now then. Verse 12. Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram. Now you almost have to wonder if he wasn't expecting something like this way up there in uh, verse 8 when he said, God will provide. I think he must have known but whatever, he turns behind and, and there is that ram caught in the thicket. But you know, God has never changed. Those of you who were with us and uh, many out on television I know are just now beginning to watch our program. But go back with me, if you will, to uh, Genesis chapter 4. You know, as we had our timeline on the last few weeks, I, I showed you how that over and over the situation changed from man's point of view. His responsibilities change. But did God ever change? Never. Never. In fact, I like to, and I'll make no apology, uh, I believe in the dispensational approach to Bible study, and, and only from that approach. It's the easiest way to understand Scripture. And uh, the best illustration I've run across, and I think it's of my own making, is our own presidential administrations. We can have a presidential administration, and I always like to use Carter and Reagan because they are probably the best two for comparison that you can think of. Here you had four years of President Carter. And his administration, of course, reflected his own political ideologies. Then comes Reagan, almost totally opposite in his approach to politics and so forth, and we experienced the Reagan administration. But they were both laboring under what? the same Constitution. The Constitution didn't change, but the administrations did. And every time we get a new president, we've got a new administration. For all practical purposes, things are going to change, but the Constitution never. And the same way here in Scripture. Oh, things may change. It was drastically different coming out of the garden than in the garden. It was drastically different coming out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and going under the law. And it was far different coming out of the law and going under grace, see? But God never changed. All right, now if you're back in Genesis chapter 4, here God is dealing with Cain. You remember? God had told them that if they sinned, and remember they didn't have law, they had conscience, but God had instructed them that when conscience convicted them of having committed a wrong, that if they would bring a blood sacrifice, God would accept them. Abel did, and Hebrews again tells us, the faith chapter, that by faith Abel brought the more excellent sacrifice. But Cain rationalized, remember, and Cain said, well, now why should I go someplace and barter for a lamb if I can just make a sacrifice of the things that I have grown, and if I make it beautiful, and if I take the trouble to go and approach God with it, Cain said, surely 
I'll be accepted. But he wasn't. Because, you see, he didn't do what God said. He was destitute of faith. You remember? All right. So now if you pick up the context in chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 5, But unto Cain and his offering God had no respect. And Cain was very wroth or angry. And his countenance fell. Have you ever seen somebody get angry? And I mean, you can just see it all over them. Well, this was Cain, and God saw it. And so in verse 6, the Lord, or Jehovah now again, said unto Cain, Why are you angry? Why is thy countenance fallen? Cain, can't you comprehend how much I want you to get right with me? You see, God is always anxious for the sinner to make a reconciliation by just simply doing what God has said. Now, verse 7. God tells Cain, If thou doest well, in other words, if you bring me a blood sacrifice like Abel did, shall you not be accepted? Of course he would. But like I told you, Cain was evidently a farmer and had no access to sacrificial animals unless he'd go and maybe barter with his brother Abel. And you see, pride comes into the picture, and he wasn't about to do that. So God goes one step further. God, knowing that Cain doesn't want to have to go through that kind of a rigmarole, he says, all right, Cain, I'll tell you what I've done. I have provided a sacrifice for you. Just like he does Abraham back here in, in Genesis 22. Now, look what it says. If thou doest not well. In other words, if you can't bring a lamb on your own, a sin offering. Now, I'm putting that in there because the word here in the Hebrew is the same identical word for both sin and sin offering. Now, again, I think it's unfortunate that our translators have not made that clear. But the Hebrew word here is, if you do not well, in other words, if you don't do it on your own, a sacrificial sin offering lieth at your tent door, and unto thee shall be his desire. Now, in plain English, what is God saying? That lamb isn't going to fight with you. That lamb is going to be perfectly willing to let you pick him up and bring him to me as a sacrifice. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. In other words, all you got to do is pick him up and bring him. Oh, God has never changed. And so now if you'll come back to where we were in Genesis, in chapter 22, it was the same thing. God now providentially provides that ram caught in the thicket. And evidently, Abraham had no problem taking that ram from the thicket to the altar. He has no help except maybe Isaac. And then in verse 14, you remember we made mention of this several weeks ago when we were going through the various names of Jehovah. And Abraham calls this Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, or Jehovah the provider. Now then, let's move on. We want to keep moving or we'll never get to Revelation in the next five or ten years at the rate we've been going. But anyhow, verse 15, the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, verse 16, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and you have not withheld thy son, thy only son, 
Now watch verse 17 and be reminded, you've seen this before, you've heard it before, that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And then verse 18, here is a repetition of the Abrahamic covenant again back in chapter 12. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, here's covenant ground. I told all my classes the other night, I just keep hammering away at these covenants because unless you can understand the covenants, Back in the Old Testament, it's awfully hard to comprehend what we talk about even in the New. Verse 19, So Abraham returned unto his young men. You remember, they were waiting. And they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And it came pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah, she hath also borne children unto thy brother, Nahor. Now, remember where Nahor is. He's up there in Syria, north of present-day Damascus. And uh, verse 21, Huz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and so on and so forth. And it's merely to, to let us know, I think in verse 23, that Bethuel begat Rebekah. Now, remember, she's going to be coming on the scene ere long as Isaac's wife. And these eight Milcah did bear to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Now we're going to chapter 23 in the few moments that we have left. And there's an interesting little tidbit here in verse 1. And Sarah was 127 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now you just read over that category and think, well, so what? But you know what's interesting about that? Sarah is the only woman in this book from cover to cover whose age is given. The only one. Now, we've got ages of a lot of the men, but she is the only woman whose age is ever given. I, I just ran across that not too long ago, and I thought, you know, that's just a, one of those little interesting tidbits that we like to pass on. Well, Sarah dies... And here Abraham has had the whole Middle East already deeded to him, remember, back there in chapter 15. But in spite of that, what does he still have to do here? Well, he still has to negotiate and buy a tract of land in order to bury his own wife, Sarah. And so you'll come through the chapter. And again, uh, I'm not going to take time to, to read it all verse by verse, but I want you to just come with me to, oh, come down to verse 11 of chapter 23. Nay, my Lord, hear me, the field I give thee. Now, this is the, the field from, uh, from Heth. Uh, no, it's Ephron, the Hittite, who is dealing with Abraham now, but of the children of Heth. And so Ephron says, The field I give thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee, in the presence of the sons of my people I give it thee, bury thy dead. But Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land, and he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, 
But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field. Now, I think it's interesting here that Abraham is not satisfied with accepting a certain amount of acres free for nothing, although he could have. But he insists on paying for it. Now, I don't know how much we can connect to this, but I think you'll pick it up even in present-day Jewry, in the, in the activity and the behavior of a Jew in our own day. When it comes to the burial of their dead, they are particular, aren't they? You remember here a few years ago, they, they made a big furor about some things being uh, built over or next to one of the Jewish cemeteries of the Holocaust. I mean, they, they have a thing about the burial places for their dead. And uh, where I picked this up was an article in the Jerusalem Post a while back, and this rabbi pointed it out. And he used this as an example. He said, even today, we Jews are particular about where we bury our loved ones. And I thought it was just rather interesting that so much of the Old Testament, even though it's way back in the ancients, it still carries through in our own present time. So anyway, they barter, which, of course, the Middle Easterners are all good at, Arabs as well as the Jews. And so they begin to barter. Verse 15, Ephraim says, My Lord, hearken unto me, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. Now, I think this is... It's almost amusing. I told somebody the other night, if you look for it, there, there's humor in Scripture. And this is almost a, a humorous situation. He said, it's worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and thee? Go ahead and bury your dead. But Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and he weighed him the silver which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth. What? 400 shekels of silver. So what Ephron is really saying is, well, Abraham, I really should have 400 shekels of silver. And Abraham pays it, see? And then verse 17, In the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which before Mamre in the field, and the cave which was therein, and all the trees were in the field that were in all the borders round about, were made sure. In other words, they surveyed it, Abraham bought it, and it became the burial place. Now then, it isn't going to be just Sarah. Sarah's going to be buried there. Abraham will be buried there. Isaac will be buried there. And I think Rebekah as well. Now verse 18, Unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of Machpelah. There it is before Mamre. The same is Hebron. Oh, that also is a tourist attraction now. You'll, you'll be going to Hebron, I'm sure, although it is now commercialized and it is so packed with people. But at this time, of course, it was still out there in the countryside. Verse 20, And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. Now I wish I had... Yet another half hour, we could just go right on into chapter 24, when we are going to go for a bride for Isaac. Now, again, just in the moment that we've got left, I'm going to put a little makeshift map up here, if I can. Here's your Mediterranean Sea again, and here's Jerusalem, and here we have the Sea of Galilee coming down to the Dead Sea. And remember, up here is Haran. And this is the place where the offspring of Terah... After he died, they continued to live, and then Abraham, of course, came down into Canaan. 
Now, when it gets time to go into the next chapter and Abraham is going to send a servant, he's going to send that servant back up to the land of his relatives, which now we know as Syrians, in order to get a bride for Isaac. Now, why go clear back up there into a far country? Man, there were all kinds of women here in Canaan. What was the reason? Thou shalt not take a Canaanite for a wife for Isaac. And then you'll find as you go on a little further that when Esau comes on the scene, you remember Jacob and Esau? Esau married two Canaanite women. And what does the Scripture say? They were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah because Esau had married Canaanite women. So keep all these things in, in your perspective of Scripture because now, you see, God is preparing everything for the, the covenant people of Israel. And he's, he's just got them under his thumb. And this is the way I like to look at the nation of Israel today. They're there in unbelief. They're there contrary to everything that we think they should be. But they're still under the sovereign thumb of their God. Because God is watching for Israel. They're still the covenant people. And even back here, God had to make sure who they married. Thank you for joining us again for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. If you'd like to order audio tapes, videos, or any of our printed material, you may do so by writing Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. That's Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. Or you can call us toll-free if you'd like at one 800 369-7856 That's 1-800-369-7856 Remember, this is a faith ministry and your participation with us is greatly appreciated. Again, our address is Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. And our phone is 1-800-369-7856. Thanks again for listening, and please join us next time for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.